And then Steve Case comes and it's in a bar. And we're like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be a great room for us. They filled the place with people. And so I'm looking out and we're seeing like all of our startup buddies and um, people that we'd just been networking with for two years or whatever, sitting there drinking beers. Um, and we're like, great, this is going to be fun. This is going to be really, really fun. Um, go through the pitch. We do our three minutes. We get some questions from you know Steve's team, um, a couple from Steve. Um, and uh, then we just go sort of into the holding room. And as people are pitching, you know, we're sort of doing the math. We're like, all right, I think we're a little bit better than them. All right. And then we're getting towards the end. I'm like, and I looked at Jess and I said, we're not going to get it. He goes, yeah, we are. I said, we're not going to get it. And so, um, you know, we're sort of sitting there and, you know, Steve comes up and he goes, he goes, well, it's been a great night, a lot of great startups, but there can be only one, you know, and he's doing his thing. And he goes, and we think that this next company has an opportunity to change the world for good. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like it might be us. He goes, specifically in the realm of sustainability. So then you know it's we're in just the bag. Like, oh my God, it happened. <laughs> it just happened. <laughs> Hey everyone, I'm Palmer Higgins and welcome to the Big Time Small Business Podcast. I interview owners, operators, and founders of the small businesses you see every day but don't hear enough about. We talk about the obstacles they have faced, the successes they have earned, and where their business is going to inspire and inform you in your own career. On this episode, I speak with John Rooks, co-founder and CEO of Rapport, a software as a service company helping small and medium-sized businesses capture and quantify their environmental footprint while saving them money along the way. Since winning an investment from Steve Case during his Rise of the Rest tour, Rapport is on a mission to democratize sustainability. I talk with John about one of my favorite topics, authenticity, albeit with a different perspective as a data-centric software company, how blockchain has made its way into the sustainability space, and a very interesting take on sustainable business models in a post-consumerism world. John Rooks, co-founder of Rapport. Thanks a lot for being on the show. Big time small business. Yeah, thanks for having us. Really excited about this conversation. Just to set the stage, can you give me the elevator pitch, which I know you're, you got locked in for yeah. Rapport? Yeah. So Rapport is a software company that helps small, medium-sized businesses track and reduce their environmental footprint. And along the way, we save them a bunch of money. Um, the interesting the interesting business opportunity within that is you've got the largest companies on the planet, the Walmarts, the Coca-Colas, the Ikeas, who are doing um, arguably very progressive things to reduce their environmental footprint. Uh, the first thing they do is they measure their environmental footprint. And what they've all realized, and most Fortune 5000 realize, is that about 85% of their impact is not their own operations it's their supply chain. It's the things they buy to make the things they sell that carry the greatest environmental impact. So um, many of those companies are on the smaller or medium-sized business. Um, and so um, we help those companies track their footprint so they can disclose that footprint to their best customers. Um, that's the business opportunity for Rapport. And how much of that is being guided towards by the big companies and how much of it is starting to be mandated by the big companies of saying coke saying guess what you know in this sector of our supply chain obviously they're not going 
full supply chain. But in this area of the supply chain, if you want to work with us, you have to be able to quantify X, Y, Z in terms of your environmental impact, your sustainability. Yeah, I don't I don't think we're seeing um, the mandatory push yet. Um, but what we do see is if you look at Walmart supply chain, so they have, I think, about 50,000 tier one suppliers. Um, they request data from all of them. Um, they're successful with about 7% of them. Oof. So uh, they have a long way to go. Yep. They've made public disclosures saying that they want to get data from 35,000 of the 50, and they're only 7% into the, into the race. Yep. Um, but they've actually set a price on this. Um, Walmart charges their suppliers to comply with the data request. They charge them $750 a year to take a survey. And it's... Um, it's kind of like a survey monkey survey. Yep. Um, and it's all self-reporting. So there's uh, really no good audit trail unless right. they were to use rapport. Um, there's no audit trail to verify the data. So is that, when you when you think about scaling the business of rapport, is it is it a dual strategy of tackling the small, medium-sized business market head on? Or do you get at that? That's your, that's your constituency, but are you getting at that by going to the bigger players who maybe have more leverage or more more influence, let's say, over the SMBs to sort of dictate, hey, we need to start doing this, and it's not a nice to have. It, it more and more needs to be a need to have. Yeah, that that you you've just hit on sort of um, um, one of our early lessons in rapport. Um, the original go to market strategy was direct to the SMB marketplace, and um, our investors and our advisors and everyone we talked to said don't do that. You can't do that. Um, and we were, um, stubborn enough not to listen to them. Um, we've learned every, every, every lesson a startup, um, um, can learn, you know, we've, we've learned them. So we went, we were going direct to the SMBs markets and we were told it was fragmented and hard to get their attention and, um, a difficult sales process and, and, and everyone was right. Um, but we were sort of having early successes and, you know, um, um, but it it quickly became uh, not quick enough, but it became apparent that uh, that's going to be that's going to be a long road. Yes. That's going to be a really long road. So um, we sort of did our uh, sales strategy pivot um, and are now going more towards that top down approach. Mm-hmm. You know, looking for customers that have influence over SMBs. That may be a trade association. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, that may be a a large company who has been struggling to get data from their supplier. And we come in and say, let us take that burden away. Let us go do it. We'll work with your suppliers directly. Um, they are our user. You are a consumer of data. Yep. You get data. If you help us get to your SMBs, then you get data. Yeah, we're going to get back to that. Great. The data fetish. <laughs> Another tagline we're going to get back to. But uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to rewind a bunch and yeah. go back to the origins of your consulting company, the Soap Group, yeah. uh, which is, for all intents and purposes, sort of the the nascent beginnings yeah. of Rapport. Yeah. So take us back to 2003, yeah. the start of Soap Group, why you did it, yeah. and then sort of the 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 birth of the idea for Rapport. Yeah. Um, so 2002, I'm working for an ad agency down in Portsmouth. Um, uh, it was the director of client services. Um, and uh, we were doing a lot of work in the 
building, the built environment space. So uh, vinyl windows, vinyl siding, vinyl this, vinyl that, vinyl this. Um, and I just really loathed it. I kind of liked the work. I loved the people, but I didn't really like the products that I was repping. Um, so I had, a, I had a theory that you could build an agency that only did work for good companies. And my, my litmus test for good company was, have they, are they engaged in this thing about environmental impact? Right. I don't even think we were using the word sustainability back then. Okay. Um, and so I launched the firm in 2003 with one client um, and a two-year-old daughter. And um, I had this quaint pastoral tagline that was marketing for environmental and natural resources. And it was so simple and easy back then. And now we've got this weird wonky word sustainability that everyone wants to redefine and argue over yeah. what it means. And, um, um, but it was so nice and easy back then. So, um, but it was well-timed. Um, I quickly got a lot of work, um, with a lot of nonprofits who were doing environmental, um, uh, work with, uh, the state of Maine, working with the department of agriculture. So talking about the environment and natural resources was a great sort of gateway into this. Um, and over the years, so, you know, uh, over the, you know, um, you know, 14 years or so that SOAP's been around, we've added more services and be have become sort of a, you know, full-grown sustainability firm. So it's not just marketing anymore. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting, though, like if you talk to a lot of the, a lot of the people in the sustainability space, a lot of them came from marketing. I mean, it used to be run out of the marketing groups because really it was, uh, what's our sustainability report going to look like this year? Yep. Um, does that have a Does that have a bad side to it? Totally. Uh, oh, it's I've, it, I've it, it, it's mostly bad side. <laughs> <laughs> Greenwashing is um, it's still there. I mean, it's definitely there. People exaggerate their environmental claims or downplay the negative stuff. Mm -hmm. um, I get that. Um, but I think it's, it's, it's not as prevalent. It's not as obvious as it was because they, because people are doing things. They have to, they have to now. And of course now with rapport, you guys are democratizing sustainability. Right. There you there's go. It, there's that's another catchphrase. That's right. That's right. So talk, talk yeah. about the, talk about that. Yeah. 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 So, um, the biggest companies in the world, um, have really big, complicated sustainability software platforms to help them manage their environmental and social footprint. So it's not just environmental, it's social footprint also. Um, and they've got a team of people that helps them do it. They've got, uh, you know, big budget for six figure software. Um, but the little guy, the, the 99%, so 99% of the world's businesses are SMEs or SMBs. Um, it was just over in, in, in the Netherlands. And so I was, I had to, I have to change to SMEs when I'm there. Um, it's all the same. I know. Um, and so, uh, but 99% of the businesses are small, medium sized businesses and they really don't have very much. Um, and so at the soap group, when we were starting to hear rumblings of this, when our customers were starting to say, Hey, I've got the supply chain thing. I kind of want to know what their footprint is. We did a life cycle analysis, but that's just a model, model data. I'd kind of like to get some real data and engage my supply, it's my supply chain. Um, there was really, there was really no software. So we built this bumpy, ugly little thing for, to use as an internal tool. Yep. And that would, that would later become rapport that we spun off. Um, um, but they're realizing that most of their footprint is inside of their supply chain. And if they want to get it, there's got to be the right sized tool. So when we talk about democratizing this, we're talking about, um, 
you know, building a tool that's, you know, right scoped, right size, right priced for the mar- for that market. Um, probably doesn't hurt that a lot of this marketing and branding work was being done in the last election cycle. So the 99% and the 1% was was on our brain for sure while we were, while we were doing this. Right, the we, wave. We were, yeah, right, right. We were, um, I remember when we first started talking about that phrase, democratize sustainability, and it was sort of the, one of the first, uh, um, first things that you'd see in our deck. Um, and we were doing some sort of pitches with some of the partners and uh, and walking through it. And they're like, I just don't get that democratized sustainability thing. Um, really? Yeah, they didn't get. Yeah. And so I was like, I, I think it's good, though. And they were like, <laughs> they're like, no, it's too political. And I was like, no, it's. It's, that's good. That's why. That's why. It, that's why it works. Yeah. Um, and so now we we all get we get picked up for that a lot. Um, people tend to dig it. Good. Um, I'm glad I uh, fell for it. Though. Yeah, you fell for it. Yeah, <laughs> you're, you're, you're good. So a couple times already, you've you've touched on explicitly or, or implicitly on this this concept of authenticity, mm-hmm. um, in term whether it's uh, unapologetically. Uh, you know, tra- trashing some potential employers who aren't aren't holding up sort of the, the values that you and your team believe in, or um, or it's turning away work right for people who are trying to greenwash and don't actually sort of represent what you're looking for. Yeah. Talk about how that has shaped. Uh, I guess that's what we'll pivot to rapport now. But how mm-hmm. that has shaped rapport is it's something mm-hmm. that authenticity, is something that we at Chenmark talk a lot about when we talk to business owners who are looking to sell and being authentic about who we are and highlighting the fit that needs to happen between us and a potential seller of a business. Mm-hmm. Uh, last episode, we talked to Jordan at Hardshore talking about, hey, there's a lot of distilleries out mm-hmm. there that make a lot of great alcohols, including the big guys. They all make great alcohols. So we have to be authentic about who we are. And their big thing is everyone that works here works in production. And mm. and that's that's the that's the generative center of their authenticity. So yeah. I'd love to hear you talk about yours. Yeah, it's it's interesting because actually, um, rapport came out as sort of a way to to um, to open up the opportunity to not using authenticity as a filter. Um, you know, the, the joke was you know the SOAP group, right? And SOAP stands for Sustainable Organization Advocacy Partners. Like we advocate for those customers, for those clients Mm -hmm. um, and what they're doing from a sustainability perspective. Um, And we've got a tight filter on it. Um, And, you know, we're a little up on our high horse and that's a real thing. I get it. I know. (laughs) I know. Um, um, And we do, so SOAP has has an audit protocol that's called an authenticity audit. Mm -hmm. It's called Authenticating Real. Um, and if you want to scare a room full of C-suite executives, tell them you're there for the authenticity audit. But it's actually a pretty simple protocol because what we're looking for is the is the gap between what you say and what you do. Mm-hmm. So if you uh, have produced a sustainability report that talks all about your water conservation, but water's not a big part of your impact, not quite. It's not authentic, mm-hmm. right? Um, you're picking the good stuff, and you're and you're. Um, um, and so in that protocol, we look at, again, all the things that, uh, that you say that may be external documents or internal documents. Um, so it could be, um, incentive systems or your charitable giving or your political giving versus what you do. And we can audit for that. We can find gaps. We always find gaps. No one's perfect. Um, and those gaps create, uh, appear in two ways. There's a, there's a risk gap, 
right? Like you're saying this, but you're not doing it. That's a risk. Mm-hmm. Um, or an opportunity gap, which is you're doing all this stuff, but you're not talking about it. And your employees want to know more about it. And oftentimes employees end up being sort of the best uh, audience for these authenticity reports. Um, so, um, you know, SoCrypt was sort of known for that. We, we had that sort of reputation. People only came to this if they were serious. And, and we had built a bunch of our own brand around that. And then when we spun off the software company, I was looking for something that anybody could buy, that I didn't have to use a filter, that I could sell to, that I could sell to, to a Walmart, right? Um, with the understanding that at least it's real. It's data right. that they can choose to do something with. Data is authentic in its own right. They're, that's right. Uh, yeah. Assume, assuming it's not all self-reported, right? And that's the dirty little secret in most sustainability is that it's all self-reporting. Right. Um, um, so one of the things that, that rapport does is it creates an audit trail back to, let's say, the electricity the, the, the uh, electricity provider. Mm-hmm. We can audit the data back because we're pulling data directly from those utility providers in most cases. Um, so we can create an audit trail back to the kilowatt hour um, and say, look, here's the carbon footprint of the, the widgets that you make. And I can, I can prove it because I can go all the way back to your utility bills. Um, so we can provide a very authentic, auditable data f- data stream, um, but I'll sell the thing to anybody. And you can imagine, um, you know, uh, a big retailer's um, supply chain that is layers upon layers upon layers upon layers upon layers, all the way down to the screw that went into the radio, you know. That, that, that then went, went into the car. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. yeah it's crazy. Sure. Uh so I'm going to, I'm going to rewind again okay. to talk about just that, that time when you, you, you bolted together something that looked like a version, maybe not even 1.0, 0.5 yeah. of yeah. rapport. Uh, was there an aha moment of, you know, this is something that, that we can really spin out and, and could have some legs in and of its own? I think so. I don't think we would have done it otherwise. Um, um, you know, I've been in the sustainability space for 14 years or so. Um, it hasn't always been called that space, but it's the same space. Um, and so we, we, we've seen this coming for five years now, this, um, near requirement to disclose your environmental impact up the supply chain. Um, and we've heard firsthand the pain that the soap group customers were having, um, getting that data, um, um, and then we'll get into the validity of the data, right? So the first is the velocity and the you know of the data, and validity will come next when we start really start um, being able to 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 audit these things. Yep. But the hard part right now is just getting the uh, the the supplier to know what their footprint is. So the most fre- so you've got the Walmart's uh, Walmart survey, and the most frequent an- answer when it's asked. Do you know what the carbon footprint is of the things you sold us last year? The most frequent answer is unable to answer. It's stuck. The, the data is there and it's stuck and it doesn't need to be because it originates somewhere. Yeah. Um, so the, the sort of the holy grail for we think the holy grail for us is to integrate in with um, some procurement software so that our data travels with an electric invoice, financial invoice. So here's your invoice. Here's the financial cost of the things you bought. Here's the environmental cost of the things you bought. Those two pieces of data originate in the same place, 
gets separated, one gets lost, the other one never gets lost <laughs> unless you purposely lose it, sure. right? <laughs> right? Yeah. right? So if we can figure out um, um, the right way to connect those packets of data, um, and we've looked at blockchain, and I think that's all sort of unnecessary. Um, now, now you're just grab bagging for every single hot it's like, hot topic. You got SaaS. I know. You got impact. Yeah. You got sustainability. Now you're going to go blockchain. We've looked at coins. <laughs> We've looked at coins. Trust me. Um, no, actually, at the, I was out at a conference in Vancouver called Sustainable Brands uh, last week. And um, there was a lot of blockchain talk going on around in the sustainability space. Of really? course. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Why? Yeah. How? Well, so um, I'll give you I'll give you one example that I'll probably butcher a little bit. But um, so if you want to add more value to commodities, so let's take electricity as a commodity, mm -hmm. and you are able to um, get data from the the, the natural gas pad, um, and on average on a natural gas pad, let's say there's 50 sensors, they're all collecting different types of data, um, um, carbon impacts. Um, 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 other other hazardous gas impacts, but that data doesn't go anywhere; it just sits there. So there's a blockchain company um, that is capturing that data, and then as that as those kilowatt hours, as that that block of kilowatt hours travels into the commodity markets, they're saying this one has a lower carbon impact. Would you like to pay a penny more for this? No way. Yeah, yeah, and so um, um, and they they can do the same thing with pork. They can do the same thing with, with lumber, right? So any commodity market, they can trace back to its origins um, and then share that data all the way up through the customer base until, sure. it, until it hits a commodity market. That's one example of how this is being used. Do they need to use a blockchain for it? I don't know. I'm not a blockchain. So it's like, it's like a super tech-enabled way of doing what Whole Foods has done with some of its uh, produce and meat of the, the yeah. multiple yeah, different yeah. tiers, the steps yeah. of, you know, yeah. this is level yeah. four. Where did this come one. from, right? Yeah. Where did the, where did, the question is, where did this come from and how is it made, right? Those are, the, those are the, as simple as you can make the questions, right? And if you have an answer to how this was made that's more sustainable than another way or doesn't use child labor, or pays their workers a fair wage, or employs more women than men, or whatever your me the metric you care about is, right? If you can demonstrate that, that piece of that piece of fabric uh, becomes more valuable to a person who cares. Sure. Not to a person who doesn't care. They're always going to buy the cheapest electricity they can find. And if you're in Nebraska, that's going to be oil and natural gas. Yep. So where, at present, where's the bottleneck? You, you mentioned you're working on the velocity of the data now, mm. but the auditing mm -hmm. of the data is important. Mm -hmm. uh, can you talk a bit about what you mean by that and sort of the, the bottlenecks from here on out to try and get to that holy grail? Yeah, so it, I think the, the, the stepping stones here are um, large companies understand that most of their footprint is in their supply chain. The next stepping stone is them to start surveying those suppliers to see if they know what their carbon footprint is and the answer is no. Um, the next step will be, let's get some data from them. Um, and that's where we are now. Mm -hmm. The next step is going to be, how accurate is this data? Um, and so that's what we're sort of preparing for and trying to push the market towards, um, is the how accurate is the data? Because right now, um, it's questionable. Um, if, you're, if you're in Target's supply chain and they ask you what your carbon footprint is, you may think that it would be a good to have a smaller carbon footprint than they think you have. 
But what's interesting is um, just knowing your carbon footprint means a lot to these companies. So we have a uh, we have have a customer that is in AT and T's supply chain. Mm-hmm. They uh, take their environmental uh, what do they call it their sustainable sustainability supply chain index survey every year takes them about two days to do this by the way so mm. if you're a small business you got to take two days yep. and have you know joe and accounting pull all the cmp bills or whatever um but um so they took the supply chain survey two years ago before using our platform um, and they were one of those uh, unable to answer. Yep. Um, the only thing that changed in their next year's supply chain or the next year's survey was that they knew the answer. And their score went up 18%. And when you say knew the answer, it means they didn't have to say don't know, but right. they might be able to say yeah. yes or yeah, no. They said 12 or for, you know, or whatever it was, right? Yep. Um, just by knowing the answer um, in most of these, in most of these uh, supply chain surveys gets you points. Got it. Um, could you make it up the answer? Yep. <laughs> you sure could. Are you, so are your, are your customers or those big customers understanding that there's a, there's a hunger for data, but is there a hunger for data at all cost? or? No, no, definitely not. Because I'd be, I'd be worried if you came in here pitching me out, great, I'm going to give you a bunch of data on your suppliers and guess what? It's all self-reported and how, do you, how, comfort, how comfortable do you feel about yeah. them self-reporting data to what is, for these big customers... A huge portion of these small businesses customer lists, right? No. Right. That's right. So that's right. I, I don't think it's data. Well, I won't say it's data at all costs, um, um, because that's what we're playing around with right now. Is what is the value of the data? And the unfortunate th- reality is, the value of the data v- differs by customer. Um, um, again, Walmart charges yep. its suppliers, so it clearly doesn't care. <laughs> Right, it, it, that 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 may not be true. They care, but they also are charging them. Yep. Um, now they've got to pay for a, you know, um, I think it's an SAP platform that collects and analyzes the data for them. So they have to pay for that somehow. Yep. Still, don't think they need to charge their SMBs for it, but that's <laughs> another story. But they've sort of created a, a shot in the dark. I don't think it costs seven hundred and fifty dollars per supplier. Right. 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 <laughs> Shot in the dark. Yeah. Shot in the dark. Yeah. Um, and so, um, um, so they've sort of set a price on it. You know, um, that's what they think it should cost, um, or or at rather, their suppliers have said it's worth seven hundred and fifty dollars to comply with 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 Walmart's data request and two days worth worth of somebody's work. So what we're trying to figure out is, you know, there are clearly progressive companies that would buy rapport for their suppliers. Wow. That's a thing. Okay. That's a thing. There are others that would subsidize rapport for their suppliers. And there are others that would recommend their suppliers use rapport. I have my favorite. <laughs> <laughs> sure. But I'll take them all. Yeah. Right? Um, and so that's sort of the dynamic we're playing with right now is, um, is who are the companies that um, really want the data and get excited by validity? So I want to I want to pivot to more of the the tactical business stuff. Uh, going back in time again to the the dawn of rapport, mm. but sort of talk about the beginning part of rapport from a business perspective, and and overlay that with being in Maine. Yeah. So, um, you know, we had a we had a when we first 
realized we wanted to spin this off and do something um, a little bit different out of, outside of the Soap Group's brand and um, um, with some with some new partners. Um, we thought about, you know, how we're going to raise some money. What do we want to do? Um, and um, uh, I think sort of wisely said, well, let's let's sort of get in contact with the startup scene in, in Maine. I mean, I, had, I mean I, there wasn't a startup scene in 2003 that I knew of. Um, there was some environmental sustainability things going on, but I wouldn't call it a startup scene. But we'd seen that that, it, that was changing and that was growing. So we joined um, uh, uh, the uh, Maine Center for um, Entrepreneurial Development, the Top Gun program, and that was sort of our first foray into, oh, look, there's a bunch of people who look like us. Well, they were younger than us, but they, <laughs> they looked like younger versions of me. Um, and so, um, so we went through the Top Gun program not thinking – not thinking that it, um, thinking that it would introduce us to people, you know, not really, not really that concerned about the content of it, um, or and certainly not the award perception of it. You know, they had like a ten thousand dollar award for the final pitch off, whatever. Yep. Um, and then as we started, um, you know, a lot. One of the things these sort of uh, accelerator things do is they have you pitch a lot because apparently that's the thing you have to be really, really good at. Is pitching. It's true. Um, and so my partner and I, Justin uh, Jaffe, and I um, realized that we were both really good at pitching. Um, we sort of run DMC the thing, so we go back and forth, which which really works as opposed to just having you know one of the co-founders up there talking. Um, we can play off each other. Um, and so I remember standing backstage at Top Gun, and uh, uh, we were about to go on, and we hadn't talked about aspirations for winning at all. Um, we were just sort of having fun with it and, and learning the pitch. And um, um, and I remember looking over to him and it, I think we were both a little nervous for sure. Um, and I said, I don't like losing. And he just sort of got this look on his eyes like, oh, it's go time. Here we go. So we went out there and we had, we had fun and we realized we're better at pitching when it's fun. Sure. Um, when we're having fun and joking and if the clicker doesn't work we laugh and you know whatever um so we got good at at, at sort of and in, in, in making fun of ourselves and so we won um uh won top gun and that was great um we got tapped in with main technology institute um they had a uh, got a couple of seed grants from them to, to do some experimenting um sort of build and break money as they called it mm-hmm. um which we were really good at um <laughs> Um, Which part? And, well, b- both, both. We yeah, we we broke as many things as we built. Let's put it Perfect. that way. Um, and so um, then they also say, "Well, I've got this development loan thing. It's up to half a million bucks. If you guys can match it, um, um, if you can come up with a match, you know, but we think you guys would be a good fit to apply." So we raised about maybe 175k friends and family, um, and then Steve Case came to town. And we hear that Steve's coming to town. He's got this rise of this rest. And my, my partner, Justin, said, I think we should go after this. I said, I think that's ridiculous. I think it's a waste of our time. Um, there's because no, why? There's, there's, no ways we're, there's no way we'd win it. It's like Steve Case, right? And then he's like, it's main startups. It's only main startups. Um, and so for, so, the, for the podcast listener, Steve Case of AOL, AOL yeah, fame. Yeah. Give a little bit, little bit of background on Steve Case. Co-founder of America Online, the guy who used to send you CDs and magazines. Um, and now has um, Revolution Inc. And they've got a, a fund um, through this Rise of the Rest program where they go to underserved pockets of entrepreneurship to do investments. Mm-hmm. Um, um, so Portland's one of those under was one of those underserved places. Um, and so uh, it's a pitch competition. 
Um, and so it's, you already know you're good at it. Yeah, we had some track record. Um, it's you know three minute pitch for a hundred grand. Um, so um, but yeah, so uh, real quickly, sort of back to the having fun thing. Mm-hmm. Um, we pitched a group of angels. Um, I won't say which ones. Um, and the pitch was literally at a private golf club in like the in like the conference room, old mahogany. Mm. Um, um, and I'm not referring just to the members, but I'm also refer- <laughs> referring to the angels. Um, um, and it was like the worst pitch we'd ever done because it was so stodgy yeah. and just dark and dreary and everyone's sitting with their arms folded, waiting for you to be done so they could say no type of room. Um, and then Steve Case comes and it's in a bar and we're like, oh, this is going to be great. This is going to be a great room for us. They filled the place with people. And so I'm looking out and we're seeing like all of our startup buddies and um, people that we'd just been networking with for two years or whatever, sitting there drinking beers. Um, and we're like, great, this is going to be fun. This is going to be really, really fun. Um, go through the pitch. We do our three minutes. We get some questions from you know Steve's team, um, a couple from Steve. Um, and uh, then we just go sort of into the holding room. And as people are pitching, you know, we're sort of doing the math. We're like, all right, I think we're a little bit better than them. All right. And then we're getting towards the end. I'm like, and I looked at Jess and I said, we're not going to get it. He goes, yeah, we are. I said, we're not going to get it. And so, um, you know, we're sort of sitting there and, you know, Steve comes up and he goes, he goes, well, it's been a great night, a lot of great startups, but there can be only one, you know, and he's doing his thing. And he goes, and we think that this next company has an opportunity to change the world for good. And I'm like, oh, that sounds like it might be us. He goes, specifically in the realm of sustainability. And and we're just like, oh my God, it happened. (laughs) It just happened. So we got up there and uh, he goes, so this, you know, the the winner is a rapport um so yeah so that was really cool so that um that gave us like the 275 to match the mti grant for another 250 or whatever it was 275 i guess maybe um um and that gave us that gave us a, a short runway and at that point we're like all right right let's um let's spend some time uh we spent about a year um building the team uh fixing the platform market testing, pilot sales, you know, all those sort of first year things, which was actually our second year. But um, we finally had some some cash to do some things and mm-hmm. going to some trade shows like sustainable brands and having a booth there and talking to Subaru and getting a pilot with Subaru and all those things. Um, and that was really sort of the, our kickoff. And it was because um, um, I, I think it was partially because means startup ecosystem had improved so much. Where do you feel rapport is um, in its in its mission? And you know what so what what are you guys working on tangibly right now? It's that's sort of the, the topic du jour and what's on the horizon? Um, you know, we're really trying to develop relationships with big companies. Um, our so you're chasing that top down approach we are, right now. We are. It's another lesson learned, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, if you've made a list of the top 15 mistakes startups make, we got them all. Um, um, so um, can, you, can you give it? I'm going to take a side a uh, sidetrack yeah. because one one of the things that I highlighted when I when I started this podcast is the the setbacks along the way, and, and the incredible perseverance that I've I've heard when talking with business owners and founders. Can you give us one? Two max, just 
stories, anecdotes of gut punches, setbacks, mistakes that uh, that you guys made it through. Yeah, I, 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 wish, I wish we had spent as much time and energy on product market fit as we did tech. Um, we should have split our tech budget and done a lot more, um, maybe not the budget, but our time budget um, on doing a lot more product, product market fit work um, and interviews with the companies that we now need to talk to. Um, again, we had... So was that just realizing the top down was the way to go earlier? Think, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the, the trick is, you know, sort of if I, if I cut myself a little bit of slack is we were having wins, like we were selling software onesies and twosies. Yep. Right. Feels good. Yeah. It felt great. And we're like, see all those, all those, all those potential <laughs> investors who turned us down are wrong. Yep. You know, we can, we can sell this, sell this thing all day. We just got Baxter um, Brewing. That's right. We got Baxter, we got Allagash and we got this other company and then blah, blah, blah. And so as long um, as craft beer distillers or craft, craft breweries <laughs> yeah. still pop up in yeah. Portland, we're going to dominate that market. Right, right, right. We were, yeah, for a while there, we we're like, all right, we're going to get into the the medical marijuana space, and we're just going to be, you know, we're going to be like the vice, the vice sustainability software platform. You know, we're going to alcohol, tobacco, and firearms or something. Um, but so we were having some success. And so we didn't focus enough on, we were having success and we had a little bit of money in the bank. And that was dangerous. That was a dangerous moment for us. Um, and and, because and, you were going to misallocate those dollars. Yeah. Well, yeah. That and we, you know, there was there was a runway. Mm-hmm. We had a small team and a decent runway, um, and we weren't. I, you know, we never sit or sat down and did the math and say, if this growth continues, we're you know, it's, you know, you're driving towards a cliff and you're driving at forty miles an hour. You know, if you slow to twenty miles an hour, is that okay? <laughs> right? No. Still heading to the, the cliff. Right. Right. Yep. And so, so I just, you know, I don't think we ever really fully. We were really caught up. We were really caught up in getting a ton of press, winning a bunch of awards, high five in Steve Case, and and selling a little bit of software. Yep. And we were blinded by that. Um, and we, now we're paying we're paying the price of of a, of a sales shift. Mm-hmm. Um, and these sales shifts, you know, we can close a mom and pop, um, you know, convenience store in a day because it's only going to cost them ninety bucks a month. But I, I'm talking to Subaru, and I'm talking to Tommy Bahama, and those are a little bit longer sales cycles. For sure, <laughs> and, for sure. and multiple, bigger dollars for a bunch of different reasons. It's a lot. It's a lot different. So I'm gonna shift gears one more time, mm. uh, and I want to talk about the the trend in sustainability. Mm. Uh, you just came back from this conference, and when, before we we hit the record button, you were telling me about some some very interesting conversations around sustainability and how. The thinking behind it has evolved, and you use the word progressive. Mm. I'd love to hear you talk about that on air because I think it's uh, pretty unique for some pretty big companies yeah. to be talking about some pretty uh, pretty large shifts in their business coming down the pipeline, come down the pike, and what that means for them. Yeah. So, so this uh, the the sustainable brand show. Um, I think I've been going for ten or twelve years. Um, so this year was an, just an amazingly progressive year for this group because the people, the, the companies that attend sustainable brands, for the most part, Fortune 5000. It's Ikea, it's Target, Walmart, Coke, Pepsi, um, and, and, and a bunch of, of other companies. Patagonia, you know, it's, it's all these really, really very progressive companies that have invested a lot in reducing their environmental footprint and improving their social footprint. 
The most interesting thing were some of the more innovative workshops around what's the next business model at the when uh, at the end of consumerism. So IKEA, Procter and Gamble. Um, and do they take that eat, as a as a given? The end. So you you say end of consumerism as a yeah as sort of a quip. I think that's a that's a big claim. They're preparing for it, right? So. Um, uh, Target was in this panel. Uh, eBay was on this panel, which is interesting because they're sort of already in that space, right? They're already trying to sell stuff two or three times that yeah. instead of instead of disposing of it. So they had a good, good, good perspective. But they've all got sort of these. I guess you, in the in the past they might have been sort of called skunk work teams, you know, little d- divisions that are thinking about this. They may or may not have the CEO's ear. Um, you know, we, Ford Motor Company is is talking about you know the future of Ford as as a mobility consultant and selling bicycles to cities. And you know, if they sell five cars now, they're going to be selling one in the future, um, simply because of autonomous driving. Mm-hmm. Not everyone's going to own a car. They know this. Mm-hmm. They know it's not sustainable. Um, so they're developing new new programs like. Uh, um, um, non-emergency dry, non-emergency service uh, rides to hospitals, really, really cool stuff, and that's actually a profitable division for Ford. It's not a big profit, I can imagine, com- compared to a, the F one fifty. And so, you know, Target is talking about we have these big buildings. Do we need these big buildings? And what happens when we don't? Can can our current retail structure can our current retail turn into community engagement centers to get people in here to shop when they're not shopping as much because they're going online mm-hmm. or whatever right mm-hmm. so these companies are thinking about this um, so that's a really good sign from a sustainability perspective what they're talking about now is is thinking about growth in a very very different way so can you think about growth um, can you be growth agnostic, right? It's not growth for the sake of growth. As uh, naturalist writer Edward Abbey says, growth for the sake of growth is the ideology of the cancer cell. And I think that's also sort of the ideology of unbridled capitalism mm-hmm. as well. And so can we become a growth agno- Can you be a growth agnostic company? And the answer is no, not if you're publicly traded. Yes, if you're privately held Mm -hmm. and you're thinking about longer term investments, right? Um, Which I know is sort of near and dear to your family's heart. Sure is. If you're thinking about um, growth as a forever company, you make very, very different decisions. You're not beholden to the stakeholder meeting next quarter. Mm -hmm. Um, So a lot of these big companies as a sustainability strategy are saying, how do we go private? That's cool. That's very cool. It's super cool. And I love I love taking the word sustainability and bringing it into a business model context and talking about growth. Yeah. So we I gave a talk out there at um at this at the at the conference. Um and it was called Making Sense of Sustainability. And we looked at pop culture, right? So you can look at what's going on in pop culture and, and infer a lot about the sustainability movement. One of the, uh, I had a woman on the panel, um, Carrie Snyder, with me, and she is a circular economy specialist. And she brought in this very scientific perspective. And she talks about, so elephants, and from elephants to mice, all mammals get, this, get roughly the same number of heartbeats in a life. 
Wow. Right? Mice are tiny. They get a bunch, but they don't live very long. Yep. Elephants are huge. They have a very slow heartbeat. They live a long time. But if you average all these things out, all mammals get about the same heartbeats. Crazy. That's a, biomimic- that. that's a biomimicry lesson that we can learn about growth. You only get a certain amount of stuff. Yep. Um, and so, um, so we talked about in our talk about this concept of being growth agnostic. Um, and the theory is, and I think there's a lot of, probably a lot of academic literature that says this, that if you are, if you are operating in a sort of a, let's use environmental sustainability and social sustainability, if you do those two things, growth comes. More people want to participate in your brand. More employees want to work for you, specifically now with millennials. Um, so that concept of being growth agnostic, I think it's just such an interesting way to think about designing a business. So then it becomes growth as a byproduct of other That's things, right. not, not, the, not the focal point yeah. in and of That's itself. Right. That's right. And, and, and there are companies that are already doing this. I think Patagonia is a good example, right? Where you know, they're saying, look, if we just make good products, people are going to buy enough of them. And we'll be the right size. That's the thing. You have to be willing to be the right size company and not the size company that, um, you know, that the analysts say you should be. You have to to be willing to say that there's a limit to my growth. Sure. You know, know, how big should rapport be? I don't know. Um, As big as it needs to be. But there's a limit. Yep. Right, there's a limit to it when we're when we're not financially successful anymore, and we're certainly not environmentally successful anymore. What's you know, um, it, it goes from sort of that you know too big to fail to too big to exist. Yep, it's it's amazing to hear that because uh, when I talk about Chenmark to people, and you know the first thing, one of the first things I say is you know, when we buy a company, we we expect to own that company indefinitely, and the people that are financially oriented. Uh, and have that sort of framework to juxtapose Chenmark against, they're saying, you know, okay, cool. What's the end game though? Right. I don't, I don't Where's under- my exit? I don't understand. Yeah. yeah. And, and, you know, where, how are you going to create the value? Yeah. Right. And it's like, well, if we're long-term oriented and we do the things that are, that are going to make sure that we're all of our portfolio companies are successful five, 10, 15, 20 years down the road, the value will take care of itself. I'm not worried yeah. about that. Yeah. Uh, but if the value at the end is the focus, well, then that's going to cascade all the way down to present day. And at the extreme, you talk to you talk to some private equity friends of ours and say, the day of closing is the first day you start thinking about an exit. Yeah. And you just I can't yeah. you can't help but change your framework for how to make decisions. Totally. totally. I mean, I mean, the, the exit mentality, right, is a big barrier to sustainability, right? We're not going to exit the planet. Elon Musk can work on you know, <laughs> Iron Man. Iron Man can work on it all he wants, Iron Man. but the concept of exiting this planet um, doesn't exist. Right? You know, um, we are not a, we are not apart. We are not apart from nature. <laughs> We're part of it, and so the concept of exit exiting. If you think, well, we'll just go to another planet, right? That's the sort of the same mentality that says that gives up on sustainability. That also says the only value. I can get out of a company is financial value, and that's it. Um, and that's a pro- that's a problem. It's a problem for me as a sustainability consultant for sure. Um, now we're getting into the realm of conscious capitalism. And totally, ma- and yeah, making sure, yeah. For capitalism sure. with a human face and all yep. that Slavoj yep. Zizek stuff. Which, yeah, absolutely. Making sure you're addressing all stakeholders, not just uh, yeah. the financial. Yeah, stakeholders. And, that, and 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 that's you know that's another that was another that's another trend that we're seeing is the is sort of the rise of the for benefit corporation. Um, yeah, I think soap was one of the one of the first. Not, not, 
and we were probably second, maybe one of the first B Corps in Maine. Yep. Um, um, and so, and now you're seeing, you know, divisions of large companies becoming B Corps, mm-hmm. um, you know, Ben and Jerry's and Unile- from Unilever. And, you know, you've got all these sort of re- looking at these new business models, right? Yep. And that's what it takes. And I think that becoming a B Corp is, um, uh, probably the first step into going private. So I want to I want to end the interview, the show with a uh, a couple of questions. You know, okay. just like a a pitch wouldn't be complete with a hockey stick chart, yeah. <laughs> a podcast wouldn't be complete with a couple of questions that I ask everybody. Okay. Uh, so so I got three for you, and I'm going to put you on the spot here. First one, fairly simple, not very original to me, but uh, what would you tell yourself five years ago if you could go back in time five years? What would you tell yourself? <laughs> Doesn't have to be rapport related. Um, I think I would have told myself to. Um, this is this is um, contradictory to what I have said previously on this podcast, but uh, just trust my instinct more. Just don't more. second guess yourself. Yeah, there's been a lot of startups that I wanted to that I wanted to do that um, I stutter stepped and didn't do it, and then a year later I was like, "Yep, there it is. That's the thing I was thinking about." Um, so I think I think. Trusting my gut, um, um, I think that, but that that just comes with age, you know, um, and experience. Okay, the next one, uh, which I think is actually my favorite, if I gave you a magical pause button where everything paused, and I gave you four months to mm-hmm. allocate, has this one has to be rapport oriented. Yep, yep. yep. Uh, but you had four months of total downtime everywhere else. What would you focus on? How would you how would you divvy up that four months? Um, I would focus um, all of that time on sales, selling, talking to these large customers, um, large future customers. I would spend it all on sales. There you go. That's, yeah. That clearly is the focus. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, it's everything. Easy. It's everything. I mean, um, yeah. So, this, so this, this last question might have the same answer, but yeah. coming in a different way. Imagine I gave you two years of profits, mm-hmm. and if that's not a sizable enough number, you can just say we can say a big a big number, a million yeah. dollars or something. Yeah. Uh, and you had to reinvest it in rapport. Yeah, where would it go? That's great. I want that happen. Um, <laughs> um, I would reinvest a million dollars into rapport in um, staff. Um, Staff would be the bulk of it, um, and I would bring in some of the gaps we have in our st- on our staffing on our team. Um, sales. Yep. Yep. So you're all um, in on sales. Time, money. You're throwing everything at sure sales. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I would. Uh, yeah, I would. I would invest in the team. Um, some primarily sales, and then um, and hire some local developers. Um, for sure. Good thing to end on. Yeah. Good. John, really appreciate the time. Yeah, thank you. Thanks for Thanks. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Big Time Small Business Podcast. If you liked what you heard, please leave us a review and share the show with a friend. To access show notes and subscribe to our distribution list, be sure to visit us at chenmarkcapital.com slash podcast. That's chenmark, C-H-E-N-M-A-R-K, capital.com slash podcast. You can also follow us on Twitter at Chen Holdco, C-H-E-N Holdco. Last but not least, 
We'd love to hear from you, so please drop us a line at podcast at chenmarkcapital.com. Thanks a lot.